Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Monday, the 14th of June. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, we record this shortly after the G7 summit, which took place this year over the past weekend in Carbis Bay in Cornwall in southwest England. And it was a big moment, not least because it was the first big such summit to take place in person since before the pandemic. So they were all there in person banging elbows together on the Cornish beaches. But also it was a big moment because it's obviously been a really significant uh, period for the the members of the G7, sometimes referred to as the leaders of the West. This has been a period in which the West has been under strain. It has not performed as well as some of its notional geopolitical rivals in the pandemic. And so I think it was a really interesting opportunity to take the temperature of the alliance. And so we're going to do a little bonus episode today, very briefly giving some thoughts on how that summit went and what we learned. Um, So with that, Emily, what were your views on this? Because we record this as Joe Biden is currently in Brussels for the NATO summit. He's there tomorrow as well uh, for the EU-US summit. And then in in Geneva on Wednesday, he will meet with the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. So big trip for him. And in fact, his first foreign trip as US president. So what are your takes so far on how that trip's going? I guess I would say that so far it's been a light victory for Joe Biden. Um, and by that, I mean that, look, he's clearly demonstrated that he is a um, that he's a more competent leader in terms of foreign policy than his predecessor, although the bar was on the floor. So I don't I don't know that one gets too much credit for clearing that um, and, and 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 sort of said the right things about the the U.S.-U.K. relationship, about the U.S.-E.U. relationship, about transatlanticism, about democracy. Um, and I think you know, demonstrated that these are alliances that can that can work together again. Um, but the reason that it's only a light victory, in my opinion, is that they're still sort of casting about in trying to find exactly what these alliances are meant to do, right? So in terms of the actual um, ambition of the alliance, I think it's still kind of lacking, right? Like if you look at, you know, if, if this was, if this, the G7 was meant to be about um, recovery from the global pandemic. Well, 
they didn't, they made sort of small steps toward uh, addressing vaccine inequality and inequity, but, but only small steps, right? I think on China, which was another big, is obviously a big priority for the Biden administration, you kind of heard echoes from, um, from Canada and from the UK on standing up to China and taking a more adversar- adversarial stance toward China, um, but not really from some of the other players in the G7. So I, do I think that uh, you know the trans transatlantic relationships are going to unravel? Uh, no. Do I think that we're are we better off than we were before the summit? I mean, maybe a little, um, but only a little. I think. I guess. I guess what? And I'm going to put this question to you now. This summit has been talked about as oh, is, is the West back? And I guess my question is: Is it clear to you exactly why the West would come back? Right? Like, what what is the point of these Western of of, of these? And, and we say Western, but Japan is also there. So, like, Western in terms of uh, what what does it what does it even mean? And what is it meant to be doing? Um, what what did you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that I agree that the optics probably ticked all the boxes for those there. You know, they, the leaders in question all got on well. Um, logistically, it seemed to go as well as could be expected. Um, there were some warm exchanges between, for example, Joe Biden and Emmanuel Macron, the French president, which our colleague Ido Fock wrote about. And, you know, anyone who wanted to go with that narrative, that this was a kind of return of normality slash return of the West probably could find the material for that in the in the shots that came out of it. But then you look at the substance and, you know, even judging by the the British presidencies, it's a rotating presidency, UK was up this year, um, uh, stated priorities, you know, it's always a bit of a mixed picture. And, you know, I, I, I think with the best will in the world, we might have expected for something a bit more from an, from an alliance that was telling us that it's back on the stage, that it's recovered, that it's capable of taking on, you know, the challenges of the 21st century. And those those those, those priorities set by the British presidency were um, fourfold, as I said. There was the question of recovering from the pandemic. There was free and fair trade. There was the climate. And there was shared democratic values. And I wrote about how the summit performed on each of those measures in the New Statesman um, World Review newsletter this morning. And that that piece is now also up on our website for anyone who wants to look at it. Um, And I think on all of them, they fell a bit short. You know, on, on, on the pandemic recovery, yes, they committed to donate 870 million doses of vaccines over the next year. That's a good thing. That is 870 million doses more than would be the worst case scenario. And yet, you know, even conservative estimates of how many are needed in the next year are around 7 billion. So from an alliance that alleges to sort of have a, a, a solution for the future of global order, that seems a little underwhelming. You know, Gordon Brown, who wrote for us recently, has called it an unforgivable moral failure. And that that is a man who does not tend to overstate his case. And, and I think that speaks to the fact that it did fall short. On trade, again, it was all a bit vague. The main big trade topic was this argument between the UK and the EU about the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Brexit Agreement, which could actually lead to a trade war. So not exactly a triumph for, for free trade. On the climate, yes, there were good sounding commitments, but they were they were vague again. You know, there was no detail, for example, on the timetable with which the G7 nations planned to uh, extract themselves from coal technology or coal energy. Um, you know, even the environment ministers of the G7 countries managed better than that when they met last month um, and they actually said that that they would envisage an over, overwhelmingly decarbonized power system in the 2030s. 
I think we really need better than that, especially ahead of the COP26 climate summit this November, where you know Western powers, particularly the G7 powers, will be expected to show an example to the likes of China and to the likes of poorer countries, and to say you know we've benefited from having carbon-intensive economies for decades or even centuries. And so we're going to take the biggest hit when it comes to decarbonizing. And they're just not doing that. And then finally, on this kind of democratic values agenda, which is sort of uh, kind of code for containing China. um, Yes, it's true. I think think there in some ways there was, I think that was probably the area which I would imagine, although I'd like to hear your your view on this, the US administration would be most happy with, um, in that there was clear criticism of China over its behavior with regards to Taiwan, Hong Kong, the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, the use of forced labor. And yet even there, you know, the, the, the headline achievement, which was a Western equivalent to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, which is this investment initiative run by the Chinese government, um, didn't really live up to the name. You know, it, it's very clear how much money is actually behind it. Um, we had James Crabtree of the International Institute for Strategic Studies write for us um, on this. And he said he just thought it was a bit of a, unless they really um, beef it up, it it doesn't really add up to a serious challenge to the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And even even if it did, you're looking at a Western initiative that seems to be basically mimicking a Chinese one. Like, where's the the Western leadership in that mimicry? I I don't really see it. So yes, long story short, um, some positive things and some signs that things are better than they were in the Trump era, which we would have expected. But I didn't feel like it really lived up to some of the hype. Anyway, I don't know if you have thoughts on any of that, um, or also whether you want to speculate on how how Biden will will be received back home when he comes back. Uh, I have two things to say to that. One, I completely agree with you on the point about the Belt and Road. Like, I think what, what people here, including foreign policy leaders, don't realize is that they're they're just not going to throw as much money at this project and offer other countries as bad terms, just speaking very frankly, as China is willing to do, right? Like the whole model here is that China is pouring money into this project and other countries will accept because they need that money and then find that they've, um, that they are actually on the receiving end of a long-term bad deal, but that can't matter to them in the short term because they need this, this money. Um, Western quote unquote, Western countries aren't going to do that. So it's like, you're, you're trying to beat them, at a game that you can't win because they wrote the rules to your point about mimicry, right? What, and, and I guess the other thing that I would say is that on the one hand, whenever we talk about, Oh, the democratic Alliance, I'm kind of like, I don't know, we can't pass voting rights here. <laughs> like who, who were these democracies? Um, but on the other hand, uh, there's this strain of thinking on the political in some corners of the political right, in the United States at least, that basically says we shouldn't be concerned with democratic values because we're in the age of great power competition, which to me is like, then what is it for, right? Like, if you're not concerned with values, what is? Are you just are you just after power for its own sake? Um, and I don't actually have a good answer to, to sort of where, you know, if it's not about if it's about democracy, then we're hypocrites, and if it's not about democracy, then it's just power for its own sake which I think is also not ideal. Right. Um, so I think it was, I think, again, I think it was fine, but I don't know that it's answered the question of, of why these things exist. I agree with you basically. And in terms of the days ahead, look, I think that Biden will say the right things at NATO. I saw today that he was speaking with our Baltic partners, which, um, 
is important, right? I know that in some cases there are countries that that feel that uh, they weren't really listened to in terms of Biden going ahead with this Putin summit and Biden saying that he wouldn't, uh, you know, that, that we won't sanction over Nord Stream 2, which side note, I think anybody blaming the U.S. administration for that after years of the U.S. administration saying they were opposed to it and Germany saying we're going ahead and the U.S. finally saying, well, we're not going to lose our relationship with Germany over this is perhaps um, angry at the wrong world leader. But I digress. Um, so I think I'll say the right things. But again, it's like, are, are, are we... NATO is not going to challenge China. Right? Like, what what are what are we doing here? Why are we why are we at this yeah. this summit? Um, and then finally, you know, I, I guess I'll I'll put it to you before trying to take a stab at it myself. What are you expecting to see out of the Biden Putin meeting in Geneva? Yeah, I think the big question is what sort of a world do we think we're in? Because I don't want to be Jeremy, too. That much. is a great yes. That is a great <laughs> great point. Yeah, exactly. Let's answer that in two seconds immediately. No, but that's that's it. It's like what are what are we. What are we doing here? Are we trying to recreate the twentieth century, the end of the twentieth century? Are we, are, are we aware of the fact that climate change is uh, <laughs> like breathing down totally. our necks and is, a, is literally an existential crisis for humanity? Um, yeah. What, wh- who, you know, where do we think we are? Yeah. No. Exactly. And I think, I think looking at the communique that was produced uh, yesterday out of the leaders in Cornwall, if this had been the nineteen nineties, I would have said this is a triumph. But if your analysis is that the world is entering into a new period of geopolitical, multipolar competition, that we face unprecedented existential challenges to humanity, whether it's pandemics or climate change or systemic collapse, yeah, I mean, it it really depends what your yardstick is. And if your yardstick is kind of like incremental improvements to the global system, then it absolutely delivered. But if your yardstick is we have had four years of uh, kind of a, a, a quasi meaningless Western alliance that has now been briefly defibrillated into into life and is facing a kind of panoply of nightmares. Then I just don't think it quite lives up to that. And I, I'm really not trying to be glib about this, but I think it's fair to judge the summit by its rhetoric. And the rhetoric was the West is back. And yes, the West was back there again. The West hasn't disappeared. The West is also a debatable notion, as your comment about uh, Japan points out. Um, but I, I just see a mismatch between the the broader environment and and what came out of this. And and if you're if you're saying that we all need to contain, like that the reason, okay, if if what you were saying is that the reason that these alliances need to work. Uh, is that we have these existential crises before us, and that's why we have the G7, and that's why we have NATO, and that's why we have the transatlantic relationship, then you better be giving me a communique, you know, that, that is answering existential challenges, right? Like, you can't say, oh, exactly. we need to have these alliances because the world is at stake, and then say, uh, here here's a small step toward addressing vaccine equity. Yeah. You need to tell us why values-based alliances are still the right answer. Because, I mean, readers of the New States will will know that I'm concert of powers curious, which is... Which is this hyper-realistic vision put forward by Richard House of the Council of Foreign Relations um, uh, and others, which uh, says that on some subjects, particularly climate change, you have to re- you have to hold your nose and um, gather together the world's biggest powers, be they democratic or not democratic, including China, including Russia, 
um, and get them around a small table with a small number of other powers and and just do really pragmatic deals to keep the whole system from collapsing. M- my foreign policy instincts, I think, are more idealist. I'm horrified by the way that China beha- behaves. I'm horrified at the way the world system's going. But I just find the idea that the West, or whatever we want to call it, is going to get together and um, solve these problems by itself or by the force of its um, persuasion a bit doubtful. And so I can't say I'm less concert of powers curious now than I was at the start of the G7. And I'm not sure that was what the idea of that summit was. Well, this brings me back to trying to get you to answer the question I originally put to you, which is, okay, so there's this, this basically the Biden administration's line on Russia going into the summit um, with uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich is that we're going to try to work on the thing, like where there are areas of cooperation, we'll cooperate, where we need to um, express our discontent with one another and stand up for our interests, we'll do that. In principle, I actually think, not that it's like what I think on US-Russia foreign policy matters so much, but I actually do think that that's probably the appropriate way to to um, deal with Russia, such as it were. But um, the areas where we could theoretically cooperate include climate change, where the United States, it's I don't even know that we're going to have climate change in our infrastructure bill, which is wild to me since like why redo infrastructure and not deal with climate change. And on Russia, like the reality is that their economy is tied to oil and gas to in no small part. So, um, you know, are these two countries going to say, wow, we have an opportunity to work together. Let's just really, you know, Putin and Biden together on climate change. Do I really think that's going to happen? No, I don't. So I think that the, the, the idea is the right one. But realistically, there are domestic politics that will keep this. I, I think that even if even if they pursued this policy, and even if Russia were willing to pursue this policy of like stand up for your interests where you have to, work together where you can, the reality is that there are domestic differences. Uh, there, there are domestic circumstances that limit those areas of cooperation further. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. No, I didn't answer your question. I mean, in answer to it, I think there's a there's a bit of an ambiguity in the whole mission of the Biden presidency, which is we're told that his mission is to revive democracy at home and abroad and to contain the rise of China. And those are the the causes that we are told motivate his presidency, that he brings up in every meeting, that he applies to every subject that is brought to him, whether it's, um, I don't know, a new proposal for wind turbines in Wisconsin or what to do about the the latest aircraft carrier to come out of production. And I think there's an ambiguity in that because the question is, are you talking about contest with China at the expense of those broader questions about the US's position in the world? Or are you talking about taking on China as part of a commitment to a democratic order? And it sounds like a kind of a petty distinction to make. But I think what he does about Russia is integral to the fact that there is a choice. And I'm going to be really interested to see whether we all know that he's going to, he does not have a, a good relationship with Putin. Putin does not like Democrats. Democrats do not like Putin. Putin has tried to keep them out of power. We understand. Um, but the question is, does he try to go in really hard and punish Putin and and use that, you kind of make an example of Putin as what happens to you in your relationship with the US if you do as much as Putin has to undermine liberal democratic values and to undermine the sovereignty of other countries, for example? Or does he moderate it? Does he, does he kind of balance it a bit? And you know, there's, there are obviously forces in Washington pushing for a more, quote unquote, pragmatic take on Russia, where 
and and this in some ways is more in line with Emmanuel Macron's thinking. And I think, by the way, the relationship between Biden and Macron is such a fascinating one because it's so it brings together so many of these intellectual streams. And again, mm-hmm. I would recommend the piece by our colleague Edo Fogg. But you know, d- does he does he go in hard or does he try and moderate it? And if he tries to moderate it, is is that do we see that as part of his attempt to kind of um, park these other issues in order to focus better on China. And frankly, in this case, to stop Russia from slipping into the arms of China, which is a, a growing concern, I know, in, in the Washington foreign policy scene. So that's and my also t- around, around the world. Like, I can't tell you how many discussions I've had with Indian foreign policy types who say, well, Russia is so close to China because you guys, like, like I did it, right? Like, you guys pushed Russia into China's arms. What else were they supposed to do? Now, as an American, one thinks, well, they could not have um, annexed Crimea, provided arms to separatists in Ukraine, and interfered in our 2016 presidential elections. Um, but the, like leading to this, the sanction circle, but but it is a fair it's, it's a fair point, right? That that part of the reason, arguably, that Russia is so close to China now is that it has this strange relationship with the U.S. But I guess my point, which I just made very glibly, is that the reason it has this strange relationship with the U.S. I mean, you can go back to the 1990s, but in recent years, it's it's not as though Russia um, didn't do anything to contribute to the the current state of relations. On the other hand, though, we've put on all these sanctions. You know, we've we you have Biden calling Putin a killer, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, what is is this working? <laughs> what what more can the U.S. It, it's it, it's not changing Russian behavior. So if you can sanction and you can scold and it doesn't get you the the result that you want, do you then moderate or, or calib- recalibrate? I guess that's that's what we'll see on Wednesday. I mean, the nightmare, as I understand it, for the U- for the US establishment is is conveyed in. I don't know if you came across the novel Twenty Thirty Four, a novel mm-hmm. of the next World War, which I read recently by uh, Elliot Ackerman and the Admiral James Stavridis, which is very well informed on US naval doctrine. Less well informed on how you write a good novel, I have to say. <laughs> but um, anyway, and it, it's uh, performed quite well in the US uh, literary charts, I see. And and it, it imagines a US-China war in which Russia is allied with China. And whether or not that book has any great literary merit, one can debate. Uh, but I think it does go to speak of the fact that there is this concern. You see it in you see it in Paris. You see it, I think, in Washington that 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 going too hard against Russia, as, as ghastly as Putin's regime is, you know, particularly in the light of what we've seen this year with regard to Alexei Navalny or you know, what Putin has been sponsoring in, in Belarus or on the eastern fringes of Ukraine or in Crimea, that there are some difficult choices there for the West and particularly for the US. Um, especially because when, when offers of, and I, this is the last thing I'll say on it, is that um, it's not that it's not that we're not having the same conversation. It's that both, but but both sides sort of use language differently. So by by this I mean you know that the, there was some discussion this week of of Putin and Biden talking about working together on cyber crimes, where you know each side and essentially the issue is that with this is that the two have very different understandings of how the internet should be, right? Um, and, and who is a cyber criminal and, and indeed who is a criminal. Um, so again, you know, I think it's I think it's fair to say that the past several years of American foreign policy for Russia are by any metric not effective foreign policy. But on the other hand, um, there is reason to believe that 
good faith American efforts at cooperation or good faith Russian efforts at, co- at cooperation, right, will be um, misused by or, or manipulated by the other side, which is obviously no world leader, neither Biden nor Putin wants to find themselves in that situation. Absolutely. Well, we promised producer Chris we would keep this relatively short, so I think I'll round it up there. Um, I would just say that for listeners who want to read a bit more preview about the Biden-Putin summit in Geneva on Wednesday, if you're listening to this before um, breakfast time in Europe on Tuesday, then you are in time to sign up for the New Statesman's World Review newsletter, in which our colleague Ido Fock will be writing about what to expect from that. So do sign up to that if you are fortunate enough to do so in time at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Um, and Emily, shortly after we record this, you're off to the airport. Tell us where you're going. I am. I'm going to Bratislava for the Globsec conference. Um, if you're there, come say hi. Basically, it's 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 a conference dedicated to looking at so many of the issues that we've been talking about today, right? What is transatlanticism? What are the future of all of these alliances and relationships? And how is Europe to position itself between the United States and Russia and China? Um, so the next time... Listeners, you hear my voice. It will be from Slovakia. It will be. It will be the first time we've done this podcast on the same continent. So I feel it's like it's wild. Be- yes. <laughs> so yeah, listeners, will be back on Friday. Emily will be in Bratislava. She's going to tell us all of what she's found out from her definitely off the record conversations with senior transatlantic security officials. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're looking forward to that. As ever, thank you very much for listening and subscribing. Please tell your friends about us. Please follow all of our New Statesman coverage of the G7 at newstatesman.com slash G7. Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.